Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Well, good morning. Great to see all of you get a chance to just uh, stand. and You get to look at me for a long time, so I just get a moment here just to look at you. See who's here visiting with us, some newlywed couple, all right. How's it going, guys? You're happily married still? <laughs> Praise God. Praise God. Pastor Daniel does not want a failure on his first marriage. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Well, we are in a, a series that is a series that has been in the making for a long, long time. Um, I'm not sure if I've had a series that has been so long in the making, uh, ever, really, because I find it a very, it's a hard series to put together because I'm trying to describe, I'm not just going through principles or keys, I'm trying to describe something that really words fail. And so the series is simply called, I, I, I called it Holy, H-O-L-Y, Holy. Didn't put any other words around it because as soon as I did, it diminished Holy. And that's the problem. As you begin to try to describe God, uh, you start to run into some problems. We've got a lot of words and metaphors. He's a God of love. He's a God of peace. He's a God of uh, comfort and different things. There's, there's all kinds of names that describe God, but holiness, his, he is holy. Here's the thing. Uh, in this series, and, and we often, and even a number of the songs this morning, reflecting, he's a God of love. He's a God of mercy. And he's loving kindness. His love will attract you and will get you on the road to righteous living. If you embrace the love of God, because he loves us, God so loved the world, you know the rest of the story, God so loved the world that he gave his son. So what depth of love, I mean, who can fathom not only giving us his son, but how his son was giving was a very traumatic event. The whole story around Easter, the cross. His love will attract you to God, but here's the thing. Your understanding of God's holiness, the awe of the Lord will get you to the end of the journey. It's one thing to start out with the love of God. It's another thing to make it to the end of the race. And we're living in a day where there's, and it's been always, but we're seeing it maybe accentuated today. There are so many opting out of the faith. They're quitting. Matter of fact, I hope uh, those who are joining for our coaching afterward, and I was grappling, what do I call it? What do I call it? I like themes. I'm, I'm into themes. I like words, right? And, and, and I was, what do I call it? What, and there was a book I picked up a while ago, and it was called, I'll See You Tomorrow. A couple, a husband and wife wrote it, and it was talking about being fully engaged in the marriage. I'll see you tomorrow. Being fully engaged. And I, that stirred my heart. I picked the book up simply because of its title. The book was okay, but the title was fantastic. I'll see you tomorrow. If we have a problem today, it's the lack of seeing you tomorrow. We are opting out. It's so easy to pick another alternative. You don't like the grocery store? There's one just around the block. You don't like that insurance company? You can pick just another insurance company. You don't like that gas station? They didn't treat you right? You just go to that one. You know what we're talking about here? There's not any level of loyalty. Actually, one of the greatest words, a definition of love, is loyalty. Staying with it. I'll see you tomorrow. I'm in it to the end. In a day and age that people are opting out, people are quitting a lot of stuff, quitting their marriages, they're quitting their families, they're quitting in their jobs, they're quitting, uh, you know, a lot of stuff, quitting on, on themselves, just quitting. And so holiness, when we, not, not holiness where it's righteous living, but when we embrace the awe and reverence and fear of God, it'll get you to the end. You will make it to the end strong. But if all you have is just the love of God, I'm not minimizing the love of God because it's the greatest command, the love of God. But there's a lot more about the fear of the Lord in the Bible than there is about the love of the Lord. Did you know that? There's a lot about it. Because God knows that there are all kinds of things that will get your heart, and you'll love that, but you 
flippantly just, you know, shrug off God. And uh, so that's, that's kind of the background of the series. So please, would you grab your Bibles? I want to dive right in. Amos. Would you go to Amos? Thank you for bringing your Bibles today. We're going to go to Amos. Chapter 9. This is the third part, so feel free to go back on our website to grab part one, part two. Part one, I was really focusing on why, just a little bit of what I was talking a moment ago, why is it important to have holy awe of God? Why is it important? We talked about that and it really springboarded off of the prophet Isaiah where in chapter six, he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. Now, we're not talking a building like this. The temple is the temple of the Lord, not on the earth, not made of hands. The temple of the Lord holds over a billion people. It'll be the final place where we go. The temple of the Lord is massive. And his train filled the temple. And the angels were crying, and they didn't repeat, holy, 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 you know, we sing the song. No, they just cried out because in the original text, holy means holy, one big word. But the writers don't know how to do that because they didn't have capital letters, so they repeat a word in order to emphasize the velocity of the word. So it's holy, holy, the angels, holy, and it resounded and it thundered over the heavens. And Isaiah saw that and he fell down, clasped his hand and says, I'm a dead man, I'm a dead man. Others had moments like that. We saw Job have a moment like that where he just, he just God, I can't go on because I had an encounter of holy. We see John, the beloved, the island of Patmos, same thing, fell down, told to get back up again. Not done with you, John, but John couldn't, couldn't keep his legs under him. This is John who put his head on the bosom of Jesus. You'd think he would have enough leg strength to stand before the presence of a holy God in the vision. He couldn't. This is the same, oh, let us be the God of Jacob. We, we sang that. And I was thinking, you understand why it said God of Jacob? Think it through that. Remember, Jacob wrestled with the Lord, wrestled with the Lord. And we often think Jacob was pursuing God. I want to challenge that. It says the Lord wrestled with Jacob, that God was trying to get his attention. And there was a battle that ensued, and Jacob in the battle came into an appreciation of the dimensions of a holy God and grabbed hold of him. Oh, God, God of Jacob. And there's so many other, Moses' illustration, King David illustration, Solomon in the early part of his life is an illustration, a number of the prophets are illustrations, Abraham when he looked upon the Lord is an illustration of those who came into encounters of the holiness of God and it shook them to their core. And so uh, we, last time together we talked about we have served, and it's hard not to, a God that we have created in our image. We've made Jesus attainable. He's a God that we, okay, here's what Jesus will do for me. Here's what Jesus will do for me. I want to suggest you can't rub the bottle and get Jesus out of it. He's a holy God. He stands alone. He stands holy. Now, he's a God of love. He's a God of mercy. He's all those things. He sticks closer than a brother. Yes, he does. But if we're to grasp something of the power and the dimension of his love, we got to understand a holy God because it really does fundamentally change everything in you when you pursue him for who he really is and not how you want to make him. Because we make him in the images of this world. We use the illustration of Moses coming off the mount and he came down and they made an image that they were familiar with. It was a calf that they were familiar with back in Egypt, the God back in Egypt, and they called it Jehovah. They called it Yahweh. That wasn't Jehovah. That wasn't, man, they made it with their own hands. It was nothing like that. They made God in their own image. We don't do it. We don't cognitively do it. But we tend to serve him based on how we see people that we adhere to. We lift high. We honor. We honor them for their achievements. Great, great uh, superstars uh, in the music business, in the sports world, uh, entertainment. Uh, maybe somebody you just really look up to. Somebody, and, and then you begin to put God in that same category. You revere him in the same way. And they really are light years apart. And that's where the problem is, is we have reduced his image to the image made in corruptible man. The Bible talks about that. Reduced him to the image made in corruptible man. Amos 
chapter 9. So how is God restoring his glory in these days? Amos chapter 9, follow with me, verse 11. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. Father, we just ask that you would help us pull back the veil, I pray, a little bit this morning so that we might have not a glimpse, I pray, we would have a habitation with you. That God, there'd be something that goes deep, deep into our hearts, deep into our minds, and that, Lord, we would behold you in a higher way than we beheld you when we came here today. And that, God, we can have every hope that as we live our faith out this week, this month, next month, that, God, we can behold you in ever-increasing glory. You have invited us to draw near. You've not asked us to keep away. And so that invitation, I pray that we will come, we will embrace you in that invitation that this day, God, we would, again, pull back that veil that we might behold you, we pray, in Jesus' name. All right. We've been created to give God glory. Our true spirituality lies in our obedience to God's will. If you say you love me but don't do what I ask, God says you really don't love me. So the litmus test of love is your actions. Doers, not just talkers. You can say you love God. You can be an active part of a church. You can teach children or you can be working with seniors or the ones who are in need. You can uh, be on the worship team. You can even be around miracles. See miracles. But Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus says, These people honor me with their lips. Here it is. But their hearts are, what does it say? They're far from me. So if you listen to them, you think they're really doing good. But their hearts aren't there. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. You don't get brownie points for that. Talk, talk, talk. No action or little action. And you see illustrations of that. You see illustration of Judas. He was one of the 12 disciples. And he, in all intents and purpose, all the other disciples thought he was one of them. He honored with his lips, but his heart was far from Jesus. You see the story of Balaam. He was a prophet, a priest. But his honor of God was done out of reluctance, not out of sincerity. You see that as well in King Saul of the Old Testament. King Saul who said, and he went around and he had a lot of show to him, but his heart was far from God. When it came to absolute obedience, he wasn't there. And Samuel would call him on it on a few occasions. Each of these operated in an anointing. They operated in a level of anointing. Listen, but fell short of walking in God's glory. You can have an anointing, but you won't experience his glory. Remember, we're not here to have miracles or to be acclaimed as great. If we learn anything from Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, they want it to be, look pretty good. They wanted to, you know, they, they looked the part, they came out to the meetings, they, they did the thing, they wanted to look good. But that does, does not impress God. Uh, God spoke through Balaam's donkey in the Old Testament story, but that beast would never be what God wants to speak through. That was an emergency situation. And God seeks a holy awe from his people wherein he chooses to dwell. Amos prophesied that God would restore David's fallen shelter. Now, I want to talk about that because it seems maybe a little strange. God would restore Amos's, or Amos said God would restore David's fallen shelter. And I want to suggest the picture of David's fallen shelter is not a literal tent or building. Amos is looking in and he recognizes the place where God would dwell his holy place, where his presence would be manifest among his people. And Amos looked down the road and he, he was saying, this, this word of God came through Amos that he was prophesying, God is going to restore. Listen, it's not over. It's not over, guys. He is going to restore David's fallen, the, the temple, the presence. He's going to do it. And I want to suggest he is beginning to do it. 
We are seeing that. We are seeing it in different pockets in even Canada. We're seeing it certainly in different pockets around the world that God is restoring his fallen temple. Let me give you some biblical history to help answer the question about God's restoring David's fallen shelter. Let's go back to Moses. Moses in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, built the tabernacle. And a little while ago, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about that there's, there's, when you have divine order, in other words, you do what God is asking of you, you put divine order, obedience in place, then his glory is revealed. When his glory is revealed, now we talked about the difference between God's omnipresence and God's manifest presence, okay, a couple of weeks ago, again, encourage you, if you've been, been there, but God is everywhere present, where can I go? Where the Lord is not, the prophet would say. He's, he's everywhere. He's everywhere present, but he would manifest himself. You see that over and over, where he comes in power in situations. So how do we walk in the manifestation of his glory and not just know yeah, his glory is upon the earth or covers the waters? So in that place of where God is manifesting his glory, we go to, when there's divine order, he, when we are obedient, when we walk in obedience to him, he will pour, He will manifest himself. You will have encounters with him. The word will be richer than you've ever had it. You will have prayer meetings will be richer than you've ever had them. There will be a hunger that will be stirred in your heart. Your mind will be fruitful. You'll see the evidence lived out in your life. There will be a number of things that will begin to flow out. His glory begins to increase because divine order to glory. And we, we listed those how that works. You can't just get the glory without the divine order. Then he demonstrates his glory. Now here's the thing. When he manifests himself, then one of two things come out of that. There will be blessing as you walk in obedience, or if you walk in disobedience, if you sin against the Lord, there will be immediate judgment. Where his glory is manifest, the response is quick. Where his glory is distant, where there is not the glory of the Lord, we don't see the evidence of sin's repercussions, the consequences. So we begin to think, well, I guess either he's, he can't do anything about it or he doesn't want to do anything about it. Maybe it's not that bad after all. And we call that delayed judgment. Some judgments follow. Bible talks about it. Some are immediate, some follow. When they're immediate, it's because there's an increase of the divine glory. And when there's the divine glory, the judgment will be quick. Or the blessings will be immediate. But in the place of disobedience or irreverence, when there's a lack of the awe, fear of the Lord, then there may be immediate judgment. We often think, well, there's no repercussions to what I'm doing. Uh, it's okay. But God is, remember one of the names, he's a just God. He's a just God. He will tally up the account. Always. He will balance it. Oh, he has to. He's God. He has to tally the counts. He can't just go and have it left. By his nature, it gets tallied. But it's Drag behind, it's later on. So, um, Moses would build the tabernacle. It represented the divine order. The first 39 books or chapters in the book of Exodus is all the details of building this tabernacle. But the purpose of the tabernacle was so that God wanted to dwell with them, but there was um, separation between God and man. And so, all these regulations and details that God said, you have to put this in order and then I will dwell among you. And it was referred to as the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of His Presence. It was a box, golden box, that they had to make specifically. And it was put inside the tabernacle in a place they called the Holy of Holies. And it was only accessed once a year behind a veil because that veil separated sinfulness, man, holiness, God. Once a year, through specific process, could the high priest enter in, and he had to follow that process. Because remember, where the glory is revealed, the judgment's immediate. Tradition says that often when the high priest would go in, it was kind of a scary job. It was exciting, and it was scary. You kissed your family, you might not come home. They Apparently, tradition, they say they would tie a rope on the, on the heel or the leg of the priest when he would go under the veil, just in case he didn't follow what God had asked him to do. Because they were known to not live. And, you know, you, how are you going to get? You just pull them out. Uh, and that's 
uh, Jewish tradition that they would do that. So it emphasizes the picture of the holiness and the awe of the glory of God. It was a sudden manifestation of God's glory. Chapter 40 of Exodus, the last chapter, shows God's glory. Even Moses couldn't enter the tabernacle. It was too great. God's glory came down, and it was sudden. Boom, it happened. All in a matter of moments, it happened. But eventually, as days went into weeks and weeks into months and months into years, people went back to the routine of life. And irreverence set back in to the hearts of the people where they pushed God away. They began to worship their own way. They began to have multiplicities of things that they gave their heart to. No longer seek you first, the kingdom of God. They began to seek other things first, not him. And we come to 1 Samuel chapter 4, and as you read chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, and I'm not going to read it, it just takes way too much time, but you can begin to read what it looked like as they walked away, a whole nation, a people that God had called, began to walk away from God. So you see this pinnacle, Exodus 40, of the glory coming, and then years, you see them ignoring him. Uh, isn't it somewhere in the book of Revelations? It talks about you need to uh, beware of that first love. Um, come back to your first love. Your love has waxed cold. Because life, life, if you're not keeping check of it, life will do that. So 1 Samuel, Israel came to an all-time low at a point in time where there was a priest by the name of Eli, and he would serve in the, in the, in the tabernacle, and his sons would serve with him as priests, and his sons were absolutely wicked. They were doing degradable things right in the temple of the Lord. They were just a few feet away from the presence, the ark of God. And this went on for some time, and there was an immediate judgment. Why? Because the glory had departed. So there was, it was delayed. The glory had departed. It was delayed. It came a time when the Philistines came and they battled against the Israelites. Again, you read of this in Samuel. And uh, they killed the two priests. They killed the sons. And at the same time, they took the Ark of the Covenant. They took the presence where God chose to abide among his people. They took that Ark and they took it as one of their trophies back to their own city. So they put it as a trophy to their God back in the city of Ashdod. They placed it before their God. Their God's name was Dagon. And whoo, look at our prize. We defeated the Israelites. We took their God and we, here it is. And they put it in the temple of Dagon. The very next morning, the Bible says, when they came back to the temple, Dagon was face down. His head fell off and his hands were broken. Oops. So they put Dagon back up. I don't know what they did with the head or hands. And the next day, they came back and he was down again, as if prostrate before the ark. So the leaders of the Philistines says, we got a problem here. This isn't working. So they, let's get this ark out of our temple. And so they sent it to another city in Felicia. And in the other city, calamity came to the other city. They went to another city, Calamity, another city, five cities. <laughs> After five cities, they finally came up with the idea, it's not to our best interest to keep this ark. You read it, it's fascinating, it's hilarious in some ways. We maybe shouldn't be keeping this. It's time to send it home because everywhere it goes, we have Calamity. The Philistine priests and rulers, they got together, put their heads together, they decided on a plan to get the ark from here to there. They would send it back with some gold offerings. They would build a new cart, and it would be driven by cow that just some cows that just had calves. And they would send it back to Israel, and Israel could have that ark back. They want nothing of it. So what happened is they did that. The ark just got inside the borders of Israel to the house of Abinadab. Now, King Saul was the king at the time, and King Saul was really not that interested in the ark. He was just interested in being king. He was interested in conducting the affairs. You see, those seemed important. The ark didn't seem important. So he made no attempt to bring the ark to where it needed to go. It just made it inside the borders. It stopped at the house of Abinadab, and it stayed, listen, for 20 years. The ark of God's presence stayed in the house of Abinadab for 20 years. Abinadab prospered greatly. The Bible says everything he touched prospered. 
<laughs> okay, it's an amazing story. Saul really had no interest in restoring the presence back. But David, oh, but David, David's a different guy. David grew up having been forgotten, the last of a bunch of brothers. He grew up in the field worshiping his God. He knew what it was to walk in the anointing, walk in the power, walk in the glory of God. David had a heart after God. We know the story of David and Goliath where he brought down the giant just because, I mean, he wasn't decked to the nine with armor. He just had the presence of the Lord in his life. And David sought God with all his heart. Saul, King Saul, who was tormented with evil spirits, would call David forth, and David would begin to worship in front of the king, and it would ease the king's heart. He was a man of worship. David was a man of war. He was one of the best warriors out there. We know that with Goliath. I mean, he could, with a sling, take down giants. He could, just with his hands, take down lions and bears. And so David was one of the best of the mighty men, and he surrounded himself with some key people who could, one man could could take on a hundred. David was one of the best. War, knew what it was like to fight battles. Worship God with all his heart. Oh, he would dance before the Lord. He would, with, uh, with absolute, uh, no abandonment, he would just pour his life and soul before God. And he was a person who depended on the Lord. Oh, he had a lot of mistakes. But he was somebody who sought for the glory of the Lord to return to his people. And in the whole process of seeking, David wanted the ark of God's presence back. He needed it back. It's got to come back to the city. Now, it would be different this time, though. You see, in previous times, the glory was restored suddenly. Like in the time of Moses, chapter 40, boom, glory came. But the glory was going to come back differently to David. Instead, it would be a restoration process. Beloved, this morning, listen, here we are, 2024, we are in a restoration process. We look for that quick, fast one. It's not happening. It won't happen. It's prophesied it won't. It is a process. Why don't you go back, read this again, Amos chapter 9, verse 11. In that day, note this now, four times it says it, I will restore David's fallen shelter, will repair its broken walls, restore its ruins, rebuild it as it used to be. There's nothing quick about that. It's a slow, methodical restoration. It's a pursuit that you stay at it, you stay at it, you stay at it. You will not quit. You will not be deterred. You will not be turned back. Your heart is one direction and one direction only. You're going after him. It is a restoration process. Amos chapter 9, 11. Restoration process. Different than Moses. Different than Acts chapter 2. When in the upper room, said the Holy Spirit came suddenly. But in the last days, the restoration, the day you and I are living in, the restoration will be a process where God will restore his glory. He'll restore his glory. So let's go back to David. This process of restoration had begun years earlier. First Samuel, let's read some scriptures here. First Samuel chapter 7, verse 2. It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained in Kareth Jerim, and all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourself of the foreign gods and the Asherah and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Asherahs and served the Lord only. So here we have David wants the ark to come back. He wants it back with God's people. He wants the presence. First Chronicles, we read the same story from a different perspective. First Chronicles chapter 13, verse 1. David conferred with each of his officers, the commanders of thousands, of hundreds, and he said to the whole assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you and if it is the will of the Lord our God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of our brothers throughout the territories of Israel and also to the priests and the Levites who are with them in their towns and pasture lands to come and to join us. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. In other words, 20 years, Saul, he was, he was an interest in the presence. By the way, beloved, there's a lot of people not interested in the presence of God. Okay? I mean, there's people here. It's a given in a crowd this side. Yeah, definitely. Just like, mm, you know, I'm okay with what I... remember one time we were at dinner, Lori and I, first church, and we hungered for God. Oh, we hungered for him. We were having dinner with some people, and we were just talking about how, you know, our hearts were stirred for more of God. And remember a lady, she'd been served all her life, and she was a Sunday school teacher, and we highly respect her, and she said, what are you hungry for? Aren't you happy with what you got? 
And we're trying to, hmm, okay, well, Paul says be content in all things. Yes, but, but there's more. Like there's a lot of people that are really suffering, have you noticed? And it seems like we're not able to make a big difference. There's a lot of people who are really sick, have you noticed that? And we're not really making a big difference. And there's a lot of families being broken up, and there's a lot of evil taking place, and there's a lot of people walking away from God, and that's a problem. And that's not the will of God. So either God's not able to fix it, or he chooses not to fix it, or maybe we're broken. And so my hunger is that we would cease being broken. We would begin to pursue him so God would be glorified in my life and glorified in the lives around. And so we, I mean, we're trying to explain it to her. She, I remember her just like looking at us like we had two heads. It's like, well, what are you hungry for? And I was realizing, and it shocked me. There's going to be, and the Bible says, many will grow cold. The majority. So if there's 100 here this morning, the majority, oh, I'm sure that's not true in Cornerstone. But in the other churches, okay, there's, there's a majority that are going to, uh, I just want to get home to get on with things, right? That, we know that. So not everybody's going to lean into this. And I'm not going to say that's all right because it really isn't all right. Because there's something fundamental that will take you into victory, that will take you into a relationship that will leave you absolutely changed. And transformed. And so David, in this story here, is a story where Saul really wasn't interested. David was. Oh, God, I, I want you. How many here want the presence of the Lord? Okay, you want the presence of the Lord? Okay. See, that's why we're not. <laughs> you want the presence of the Lord. You know, a week ago, I'm sidetracking. A week ago, I had a song. I put it up. William McDowell. Some of you saw that. Remember that song? It really stirred my heart. Story behind it. I won't share it. But the song goes like this. In this past week, just a couple days ago, I was up in the middle of the night. Couldn't get to sleep. And so I, uh, I went downstairs, two levels below Lori, because dare I wake her. So picked up my guitar, and I began to play the song. The song, I know what it's like to be in the presence of the Lord. This is the song I showed a couple weeks ago. And not know what time it is, because time stood still. Bodies were healed, families restored, because we stayed here in the presence of the Lord. Hallelujah. No one had to say a word, couldn't even make a sound. I'd give up, I'd give up everything for this treasure I found. I never wanted to end. So I say, this was a song. Stay. I don't want you to go because my heart is burning in your presence, Lord, so please stay. I don't want you to go because my heart is burning in your presence, Lord. And then it goes into the chorus, and the chorus is, I want more. I want more. There's a hunger there. There's an acknowledgement. God, this is not the end of the game. We're well into the game, but it's not the end. This is not the, the conclusion of it. Lord, we need your presence. That's where David was at. That's the story where we have David showing up here at this point in time, where David is saying, I need his presence back. I need his presence. Saul didn't, but I do. I need his presence. And so David sought the presence of the Lord. Now, here was the problem. If you go back to 1 Chronicles chapter 13, verse 1. We go back. Can we show that again? First Chronicles 13, verse 1 to 3. It says, David conferred with each of his officers. And then it says, if it seems good to you. Here's the problem. Who cares what's good to them? What's good for God? Remember, we worship in the, in the image we create of him. David needed to be asking, how does God want his presence to return? But instead, he got his leaders together and said, what do you think is the best way to do this? That's what he did. Now, there's a problem here. You're going to see where the problem unfolds. So it's not about what God said. He made this mistake. It was a fatal mistake. You know, the democratic popular vote is not always the best. God is a kingdom of theocracy. He's a king. He's a king. He's a king. And it's not simply the majority rules when it comes to God. He's holy. 
And so um, he needed to ask, what's right with God? It wasn't the popular vote that ruled. So we have 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 3. They set the ark of God on a new cart, brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah, Ai, sons of Abinadab, were uh, guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. Now, where did they get the idea of using a new cart? Philistines. That's what they did. They sent it back 20 years before, and they built a new cart. They got a cow, and they sent it back on a cow and a new cart. So this is how they came up with their idea of how to move God's presence on a new cart. Philistines did it. Again, I want to emphasize reducing the worship of God to corruptible worship. This is what I talked of last week, where we worship God according to how we want to worship. So we continue on. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 5. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, songs, harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, cymbals. They came to the threshing floor of Nacon. Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the ox stumbled. Now note this part. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his... What's the next two words? Irreverent. Because he lacked the fear of the Lord. Didn't say God was mad because he tried to help out a stumbling ark. See, what had happened was, for 20 years, that ark was in his home. And although they were blessed, you've ever heard the expression, familiarity breeds contempt? Sometimes we're so familiar with coming into the house of the Lord, with them doing their stuff, me doing my stuff, people out there doing their stuff. It's the same old, same old, same old familiarity. Watch this, church. Same old familiarity. We've lost the awe of God. For 20 years, it was in their house. And so when it stumbled, just, just help it out. Just help it out. It had become familiar to them. And God said it was because of his irreverent act. He was struck down. He died right there. Again, where the glory is increased, the judgment's immediate. Happened immediately right there. Uh, okay, so uh, let's continue on. Um, the stronger God's manifested glory, the swifter and more severe his judgment for irreverence. Second Samuel chapter 6, verse 8. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and that day they called the place Perez Uzzah. He was afraid of the Lord that day. There's a big difference having a fear of the Lord and being afraid of God. There's a lot of people who are afraid of God, that God's going to smack them upside the head, that you make a mistake. God's not that kind of God. He's not that kind of God. Big difference. You see, when you're afraid of God, you'll pull back. When you have the fear of the Lord, the awe of God, the reverence of God in your heart, you'll draw near to him. Big difference. Huge difference. Universe of difference. When you're afraid because God's going to get you. And some of us have grown up with those telling us, God's going to get you, God's going to get you. And so you are afraid of God. Don't be afraid of God. He beckons you, come, come. But there's a difference when we have awe of God. Don't come just thinking that he is like anyone else. He is, what's the word? Holy. He is holy. He is holy. And so uh, David was afraid right at this moment. When your best is unacceptable, what do you do? That's what David was struggling with. And I want to tell you, when your best is unacceptable, it is because of the lack of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. It's not enough to have zeal. You need to have knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. It is your and my responsibility to search out God's knowledge, the wisdom, and understanding of God. It's your responsibility. I can't do it as a pastor for you. Your husband and wife can't do it. Your mom and dad cannot do it. Somebody else cannot do it. You and you alone must search out the knowledge, wisdom, and understanding of God. Now, those three things, and I invite you, I looked it up. Uh, it's still on our website. So I, if you were not a part, two years ago, I preached a two-part series called The Tabernacle. I don't know. Anybody remember that series? Anybody? Okay, there's a handful. Remember that series called The Tabernacle? And if you go onto our website, auroracornerstone.ca, go back to the sermons, and it's now in podcast form, you will go to... Um, the title of the series is called Now is the Time. So you want to mark that down. Now is the Time. That's the heading. There's a whole bunch of messages, particularly around prayer. I was preaching two years about that. 
and not for two years, but it was two years ago. And in that, there's a part one and part two called the tabernacle. I invite you to do that. It is revolutionary, understanding something about the tabernacle. And the tabernacle has an outer court. That's the place where the flesh, but there's an inner court, the holy place, and it's covered. It's totally black. You go in there, and it's only lit by the candle stands, and there's three pieces of furniture in there. There's a showbread, and there you receive the knowledge of God. You study. You search with all your heart. You seek him with all your heart, and he, you will find Then you go to the candlesticks, and the candlestick speaks of the seven golden candlesticks, and they speak of illumination where he reveals wisdom. So you have knowledge, now you have wisdom. You know what to do with the knowledge. And then you go to the altar of worship. It's the altar of incense. And there you worship him. We want to jump right to the altar. We, and it's one of the mistakes that we make sometimes in our worship. We're quickly inviting people to jump right into worship. We're not ready for worship. We're still way out in the outer court somewhere. So we're flirting with worship, thinking it's a good thing, but we really haven't encountered him. We're singing songs like a campfire. We're singing songs, but we haven't encountered God because we have come into the place of praise and thanksgiving and then into the inner courts where we knowledge. Am I I learning of him? Am I partaking of that? Are you digging into his word privately beyond Sunday, digging into his word beyond a few little devotions, beyond a few scraps, digging in? And then in that, There's wisdom to apply it, and then you come to understanding. Now it makes sense as you worship. Now you worship before him with clean hands and a pure heart. And then before you know it, you're into the holy of holies. You're before the Shekinah glory of God. You behold his presence. Wow. Proverbs 2, verse 1. My son, if you accept my words and and store up my commands within you, turn your ear to wisdom. Apply your heart to understanding. Indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for a hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. you got to do it. That's yours. That's on you. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1. These are the commands, decrees, laws of the Lord directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess so that your children... Their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you so that you can enjoy a long life. Enjoy it. The error David made that day was avoidable. A man did not have to die. So David and his men got together and they, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? They had to go back, get knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Exodus 25, it was right there. David could have found it if he had sought the right place instead of people's opinion. Exodus 25, 14, it says, insert the poles into the rings of the ark. They're not to be removed. So here you have the ark, God's presence. There's these rings. You put, pole, you put these big old poles through them, two poles, one on each side. Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, it talks about Aaron and his sons finish covering the holy furnishings and all the holy articles. And when the camp is ready to move, the Caiaphites, that is a segment of the Levitical tribe, the Caiaphites are to do the carrying But they must not touch the holy things or what? They'll die. It's right there. Numbers chapter 7, verse 9. They were to carry it on their shoulders, the holy things for which they were responsible. We learned three things. If he had just searched it out in the right place. Number one, there's poles. Number two, it was by a Kohathite group of people who were set apart, consecrated for God's work. Not just anybody. And then it was to be carried on the shoulders of people. God is not interested in carrying his presence in a cart. He's not interested in his presence being carried by beasts of burden out there. He's interested in you carrying his presence. It's on my shoulders. It's on your shoulders. He wants us to carry his presence. That's where he prizes. And so David missed it. He totally missed it. That's how it was to happen. Here's the question I want to leave with you. Wow. What is your source of inspiration? today. Are you going back to the foundation of God's word? Are you digging in? You've got to. You've got to dig in like a dying person and read it for yourself. If your source is a pastor, simply your pastor, it's not enough. If your source is your husband or your wife, it's not enough. If your source is television ministry, it's not enough. If it's media, it's not enough. If it's the devotional here and there, it's not enough. Where is your source? Is it for friends? Is it somebody? Is it somebody opinion? It's not enough. We have to ask that question, is your source God? Are you coming to that source? It's about restoration. 
First Chronicles chapter 15, 2, then David said, no one but the Leviticus, the Levites, may carry the ark of God because the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God to minister before him forever. So this time, David doesn't ask for a popular opinion. David has already found his answer. And so he boldly sets it into motion. First Chronicles chapter 15, verse 12, he said to them, you are the heads of the Levitical families. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourselves, bringing up the ark of the Lord. Again, a consecration process the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. Listen, God's glory, church, is being restored, and it will exceed the days of David. James spoke of this in the last days. He quoted Amos in Acts chapter 15. I have it here for you, verse 16. James said this, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and will restore it. That the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for the ages. Note that part. I will rebuild David's fallen tents. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. And then he spoke even to the Gentiles. At that time that was crazy. But even to the Gentiles, and thank God that's most of us here even to the Gentiles. James saw a great harvest of believers coming into the kingdom with a restoration of God's glory. Hallelujah. Actually, if James had quoted Amos a little longer, he would have found Amos said this. Amos chapter 9, verse 13. Amos saw this. I'm going to continue. Verse 13. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. What God is saying here, he's saying the harvest will be so abundant in that day. We're still looking for it. The harvest will be so abundant in that day that the reaper, loaded with such a task of the harvest, will not be able to complete the work before the plowman's coming right up behind him to get the new crop in. They're coming so fast. Wow. Greater than we've ever seen. Greater than we've ever seen. Amos says, I see the day coming where his glory will be restored. Process, rebuilding, a restoration of his glory. The crop will go faster than they can harvest it. Church, this coming harvest will be so abundant, will be overwhelming. Glory to God. I look for that. I long for that. My heart seeks after such. Do not resist God's purifying work now. Do not neglect the knowledge of the Lord. And I want to close here. And I was thinking about how, you know, how do I wrap this up? Because typically the question is, is, I don't feel that. I don't, I hear what you're saying. And my heart, yeah, there's a bit of a stir there, but I, God just seems really distant. I just don't feel it. I don't get it. I don't, I'm not there. I, how do you pray and read the Bible? Because I do and I experience nothing. Church, perhaps too long we have moved from the bosom of the world and come to church to worship. And feel nothing. Because there has been a satisfying around us. I, I want to put this picture up here. It's a picture of a battery. Okay, I don't know if you've ever had this happen. Um, it's about corrosion. Corrosion in this life is keeping people from experiencing the ever-present power of Jesus in our midst. There are people very close to God, very close to the power of God, separated by a very thin layer of insulation. I want, you, I want you to hear that again. Don't want that missed. People very close to the power. We're, we're close. But we're separated by a very thin layer of insulation. When you think of the battery, you go out, perhaps not in the cold weather because it's a whole different problem, but you go out to start your car and you turn the key and nothing happens. You've popped the hood and you pull the encasement off the battery and you look at your battery and you see this green and white powder on the top of the terminals. I don't know if I've ever seen that. I have. And so you get out this little wire thing and you disconnect the cables and you twist it and you work on it and you clean it and you turn that green and white powder stuff, which is really hard, thick stuff, and you get it off, you work it work until they're shiny, until they're all nice and shiny. You put the cables back on, turn the key, and it roars to life. What just happened? I'll explain something, and I think this maybe will help. The battery terminals and cables are primarily made of lead. 
Lead is a soft material that carries electricity very well. However, lead exposed to air oxidizes. Lead oxide is that green and white powder. And it's really hard. You have to scrape it off. These oxides are extremely hard. They're extremely brittle. And they refuse to conduct electricity through them. Church, I just see it. God has made us people to be soft and conducive. I was just, I'm doing a series. I'm preparing for uh, life together in year two. And I've been putting some stuff together. And I want it to start with the Beatitudes. And you go in the Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5. And I'm doing a Beatitude for each one. And, you know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble. Blessed, right? And it's, and it's, it's the pliable, soft heart. So we are soft. We're malleable. We are to carry the current. There's an oxidizing process in life where life corrodes our potential spiritual makeup, separating us from the spiritual power. We're really close, but we're not there. A person is, who's in poor spiritual health, there's a hardness, there's a brittleness. They can't feel the Spirit's power. It only took a small area of corrosion in your car to separate it from the power. I mean, you think about it. Think there's a big motor there, the wheels, the you know, big old car ready to go. But it can't do anything with a small little layer of corrosion. It can't go anywhere. When you think about that, you've got to clean off the corrosion. When you're corroded by life's oxidizing power, you're without power. Maybe that will help. There's things that are corroding. And all a battery required, just the air will oxidize it. The things around us begin to oxidize our lives as children and sons and daughters of God. And corrosion built. And we're so close, but we're so far. And God says, the song that we sang earlier, give us clean hands, give us pure heart. God, show me, search my heart. What's corroding? So that I can begin the process of courting your presence again. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.